If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of November 7, 2021. The podcast that invented invisible makeup. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's accumulate the news of the bogus. So, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has started hot and heavy. As of this podcast prep, the prosecution still has more witnesses to call, but so far, it's not going well for them. So far, the main theme coming out of the case is exactly as Prosecutor Thomas Binger said in his opening arguments, quote, Out of the hundreds of people that come to Kenosha during that week, the hundreds of people that were out on the streets that week, the evidence will show that the only person who killed anyone was the defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse. Really? Does that sound like a winning argument to you? Maybe Kyle Rittenhouse was the only one who was attacked? In fact, the prosecutor's opening statement sounded just like a self-defense argument for Rittenhouse. The prosecutor even acknowledged the violent, agitative nature of those he wanted to call victims. Really, the parts that weren't outright victim-blaming were of the nature, Oh, it was just a little rioting. It was just a little violence. It was just a little beating him with a skateboard. It was just a little threatening to shoot him. I mean, he actually said, quote, The evidence will show that this is a crowd that is not a safe crowd to be in. This is a crowd that does not view him as an ally. This is a crowd that if he ventures out into it, there could be problems. Now, imagine if he said that about a woman who was raped in a bad part of town. You know the left would be all over him, and deservedly so. But Kyle is part of the not-we, so apparently he doesn't get the same consideration. The implication, sometimes even stated outright, is that the only reason that Kyle went there in the first place was to start trouble. When even the prosecution witnesses have given the real reason he was there, to protect a business from violent people and render first aid to anyone injured. But the prosecution even mentioned that Grosskreutz pretended to surrender, Kyle didn't shoot, and only shot once Grosskreutz tried to shoot him. How does that square with his stylization of Kyle being a murderer out to kill people? I mean, there's getting on top of bad facts, and then there's just handing the defense everything it needs. This was a hostile crowd that didn't like Rittenhouse and wanted to do him harm. So is it really such a stretch, then, that what Kyle did was 100% self-defense? So as TMJ4 reported, quote, the defense began to prepare to begin its own opening statement. Wait, wait. The defense began to prepare to begin its own opening statement? Jeez, who wrote this article? But the state objected to a plan by Rittenhouse's legal team to show the court dozens of photos and videos. Because of course they did. The state told the judge it was unusual. It's not at all unusual. It would take too long, and an opening statement should be a summary of the evidence, not the evidence itself. The judge, not being a moron, allowed it. Anyway, the first witness was Kyle's friend Dominic Black, who went with Kyle to buy the rifle for the purpose of hunting and kept it at his home because it would be illegal for Kyle to take it to Illinois. 
Again, I have no idea what Binger was thinking, as Black destroyed every one of his claims. Kyle was not an aggressor and just went there to render first aid. They all, with one exception, went there with, quote, AR-15-style rifles. Rosenbaum was absolutely the aggressor, and Kyle was in severe distress after the shooting. Binger seemed floored by several of Black's answers, even though an attorney will tell you never to ask a witness a question when you don't know how they'll answer. They did hear testimony about the FBI surveillance footage, but it wasn't broadcast because the public isn't allowed to know about that. Why? Some of the footage itself did come in later, but nothing that contradicts the defense. We did learn that the guy who fired the first shot is a guy named Zeminski. We knew it wasn't Kyle, and now we have confirmation that Zeminski fired his gun into the air, which is a really stupid thing that you should never do. Likewise with Corey Washington, who live-streamed it. After Binger got nothing useful from him, he just went with his favorite, Well, no one else shot anyone, did they? But that opened the door for the defense on cross to ask him if anyone else had been chased, anyone else on the ground being kicked or beaten, anyone else being set upon by an armed individual. Washington's answers? No, no, and no. He even said that Kyle wasn't acting maliciously, but Rosenbaum was. Then there was Richard McGinnis, who you'll recall was the journalist who was with Kyle and provided a lot of the information confirming it was self-defense. The prosecution has added on a charge of reckless endangerment of McGinnis, but considering McGinnis himself said that's not what happened, again, one wonders what Binger was thinking. The most choice part of this testimony is when Binger said McGinnis was basing his opinion on Rosenbaum's motivations on guesswork, and McGinnis replied, quote, Well, he said, fuck you, and then he reached for the weapon. The biggest fail for the prosecution was probably Ryan Balch, who testified as to direct death threats Rosenbaum made to him and Kyle, and other facts that basically destroyed any case the prosecutor might have had. Like with McGinnis, Binger then tried to say he was lying, his own witness, when the defense easily clarified in another very brief cross. It also came out that Kyle willingly unlocked his iPhone and turned over all digital data that investigators wanted. But with Gage Grosskreutz, the same detective got a search warrant for his digital data, it was approved by a judge, but prosecutors refused to execute it because of the Victim's Rights Law, known as Marcy's Law. The prosecutor put the kibosh on it, and Grosskreutz didn't want that data handed over. And it was the first time ever that a search warrant was not executed in Kenosha County because of Marcy's Law. One more way victims' rights is just another word for kangaroo court, and why judges like Judge Schroeder do very well not to let them be called victims without a conviction. So I'll reiterate what I've said before. If Kyle gets convicted, it will mean the end of self-defense in America, because if this isn't self-defense, then self-defense isn't a thing. You could not possibly ask for a more textbook case of self-defense, as practically admitted in both the charging document and the prosecution's opening statement. This is a political prosecution, nothing more. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, 
but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. So, you know the January 6th Capitol building occupation, the one that was clearly an attack on democracy, an attempt to overthrow the duly elected government, a seditious conspiracy of insurrectionists? Well, now we know exactly how many of the Jan 6 defendants will be charged with seditious conspiracy, and that number is... Zero. In fact, most of the more than 400 people who were charged after Jan 6 have been charged with nothing more than misdemeanor trespass. According to Joshua Braver, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, there may be a reason for that. Quote, Seditious conspiracy is a vague and overbroad statute that could be used to criminalize some legitimate forms of protest and much mundane criminal activity. The statute's revival is recent, and the statute was dying a slow and quiet death. It would be a mistake to resuscitate it. D.C. Chief Prosecutor Michael Sherwin and DOJ spokesman Mark Raimondi declined to comment. But even after that's the case, you can still read the incredible bias in the news media. Reuters, a major source for news outlets all over the country, published an article with phrases such as, quote, Nearly five months after hundreds of Donald Trump supporters launched a deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol, only four people died, all of them protesters. Quote, the Jan 6 violence that left five people dead, including a Capitol Police officer. Oh my God, they're not still trying to claim that Brian Sicknick was killed by protesters with a fire extinguisher, are they? This podcast debunked that back in April. The New York Times even retracted the claim. Or how about this one, quote, Then President Trump was impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives and acquitted by the Senate on a charge of inciting insurrection in a fiery outdoor speech before the Capitol assault. Uh, the assault had already started? This has been well established. And remember, this is one of the largest news agencies in the world, used as a source by news outlets everywhere in the U.S. The same news agency, by the way, that refused to use the word terrorist after the 9-11 attacks. But it seems like one of the few journalists you can rely on is Glenn Greenwald, who wrote on Rumble, quote, For the last nine months, Democrats in politics and media have insisted that 1-6 was the worst attack on American democracy since the Civil War, that it entailed crimes of sedition, treason, 
insurrection, and attempted murder and kidnapping of elected officials. Yet thus far, not a single American has been charged with any of those crimes. If Democrats believe this narrative, why are they not enraged at the Biden DOJ? Yeah, how can they just put up with the DOJ refusing to prosecute traitors, insurrectionists, and would-be murderers? Unless, of course, they never really believed it to begin with. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Okay, time to bash the Supreme Court again, this time about the case ACLU v. United States. This case has to do with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, who have refused to release secret information about the surveillance of Americans. The ACLU wrote back in June, quote, The public has a right to see the legal decisions addressing novel surveillance programs that affect our privacy and free speech rights but many of the FISC's opinions remain closely guarded secrets. After the FISC and its appeals court rejected the ACLU's public access arguments in a series of rulings, the ACLU asked the Supreme Court to review these rulings and to recognize that the public has a First Amendment right of access to the FISC's opinions. And the Supreme Court denied them certiorari. The only dissents were Justice Gorsuch, who was joined by Justice Sotomayor. Gorsuch wrote, Ultimately, the Church Committee in 1975 issued a report concluding that the federal government had, over many decades, intentionally disregarded legal limitations on its surveillance activities and infringed the constitutional rights of American citizens. In the wake of these findings, Congress enacted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. The statute created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and empowered it to oversee electronic surveillance conducted for foreign intelligence purposes. Like other courts, the FISC may announce its rulings and opinions that explain its interpretation of relevant statutory and constitutional law. Unlike most other courts, however, FISC holds its proceedings in secret and does not customarily publish its decisions. The lower courts had ruled against the ACLU, so the ACLU petitioned the Supremes for cert. According to Gorsuch, quote, In response, the government does not merely argue that the lower court rulings should be left undisturbed because they are correct. The government also presses the extraordinary claim that this court is powerless to review the lower court decisions even if they are mistaken. On the government's view, literally no court in this country 
has the power to decide whether citizens possess a First Amendment right of access to the work of our national security courts. This case presents questions about the right of public access to Article III judicial proceedings of grave national importance. Maybe even more fundamentally, this case involves a governmental challenge to the power of this court to review the work of Article III judges in a subordinate court. If these matters are not worthy of our time, what is? Gorsuch is a conservative while Sotomayor is a liberal, so this is a bipartisan dissent. Of course, that also makes the denial itself bipartisan. Man, was George Carlin right or what? Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to sagitate this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to Democratic operative Daniel Jones regarding his laughably named Democracy Integrity Project, another example of Killian's Law in action. So do you remember that supposed scandal of Donald Trump's secret server with the Russian Alpha Bank from back after the 2016 election? Maybe you don't have to remember that far back as we reviewed it back in September. Basically, the only way you could fall for it is if you don't know anything about how DNS works. Jones has tried resurrecting that with an incredibly deceptive report that Robert Graham of Errata Security had no trouble debunking. This all has to do with the domain name mail1.trump-email.com. Despite what a non-techie might be forgiven for thinking, this actually has nothing to do with Donald Trump, at least not directly. The domain name belonged to Sendin, a marketing service used by hotels all over the world. Trump Hotels had contracted with them to do marketing. As part of that, they independently created the domain name for the purpose of sending bulk emails. The domain name wasn't even set up on anything that could accept connections. Neither Trump nor any of his businesses had any control over the domain name or the email server. The contract with Sendin ended in March 2016, but since they had reused the IP address for other marketing programs, the DNS name continued to resolve. So Graham writes, All sorts of right-wing sites claim he's a front for George Soros and involved in the Steele dossier. That's right-wing conspiracy theory nonsense. But at the same time, he's clearly not an independent and objective analyst. He was hired to further the interest of Democrats. If the data and analysis held up, then partisan ties wouldn't matter. But they don't hold up. Jones is clearly trying to be deceptive. 
Of the repeated references to the Trump server, Graham writes, There is no Trump server. There is a list track server operated on behalf of Sinden. Whether the Trump org had any control over the name or the server is a key question the report should be trying to prove, not a premise. The report clearly understands this fact, so it can't be considered a mere mistake, but a deliberate deception. As far as how the domain name came about, quote, Sendin did what they normally do in such cases, register a domain with their client's name for the sending of bulk emails. They did the same thing with Hyatt-Email.com, Denahan-Email.com, MGH-Email.com, and so on. What's clear is that the Trump Organization had no control, no direct ties to this domain name until after the conspiracy theory hit the press. The first finding of the report is Alpha Bank, Spectrum Health, and Heartland account for nearly all of the DNS lookups for mail1.trump-email.com in the May to September timeframe. Graham writes, Yep, that's weird and unexplained but it concludes from this that there were connections saying the following. In the DNS environment, if computer X does a DNS lookup of computer Y, it means the computer X is trying to connect to computer Y. This is false. Before the contract was canceled in March 2016, there were DNS lookups for the mail1.trumpemail.com name from all over the place. That's because the ListTrack server was pumping out bulk emails, spam, promoting Trump hotels. Servers receiving the emails would often check the identity of the server through DNS lookups, but without any attempt to connect. This fact is footnoted in the Jones Report, even as it claims otherwise in the main text. Wow, revealing your own dishonesty in a footnote! That's a Thomas Binger move right there! Quote, if Sendin repurposes the server for something else, such lookups can still happen without connections. The DNS records hadn't changed. So if the server sends out new things from that IP address unrelated to Trump org, it'd still cause DNS lookups for the TrumpEmail.com domain to happen. It wouldn't mean anybody was trying to connect to the server. As for the comparison with DeHeinaEmail.com, quote, This comparison was obviously bogus. The contract with Sendin ended in March 2016, after which Sendin claims it repurposed the server. Jones uses the time frame August 2016 through September 2016 to compare traffic for those two domains. Of course they'd be different. A valid comparison would be a time frame before March 2016 when both were clients of Sendin. We don't really have a full picture of what happened, such as data going back to 2015. We have a carefully curated subset of the data designed to show us what they want us to see. The next claim is about SPF, the sender policy framework that prevents email spoofing. Jones is claiming that the server isn't correctly configured for it, and that means what exactly? But Graham shows the same configuration as present for other send and list track bulk email servers. Quote, they should probably fix that. That doesn't mean list track send and aren't in the bulk email business, only that they could be better at it. He also claims it's suspicious that the server only accepts incoming email from specific senders, not the public. Quote, they assume the specific senders would be those from Alpha Bank, Spectrum, and Heartland. Again, 
they don't compare properly to other send and list track systems. If they had, they'd have found that they all are configured the same way. And he gives you a whole subnet of servers that anyone can test to verify this. He explains, quote, This is a vestigial configuration common to bulk email senders. Spammers only send email. One way to test if somebody is a spammer is to connect back. This configuration makes it appear they'll accept email even if they won't, passing the test. In no way is this evidence of secret communications. It's not evidence of their claim that somehow AlphaBank, Spectrum Health, and Heartland would be on the list of allowed senders. We would need additional evidence to make that claim, not an assumption. The next claim is that the deletion of the server on September 23rd is, quote, a deliberate human action taken by someone working on behalf of the Trump Organization and not by AlphaBank. Graham writes, This finding is an excellent demonstration of how to identify conspiracy theories. Anomalies that cannot otherwise be explained become proof of the conspiracy. After all, the conspiracy theory can explain everything. And remember the proper definition of a conspiracy theory. It's there to write off any information to the contrary as a result of the conspiracy. Since the conspiracy theory cannot be falsified, it's intellectually void. But as Graham points out, we know exactly what happened. Quote, The FBI called Sinden on the morning of September 23 and asked them about the domain. As the agent reported back, followed up this morning with Central Dynamics, Sinden, who confirmed that the mail1trumpemail.com domain is an old domain that was set up in approximately 2009 when they were doing business with the Trump Organization that was never used. Thus, it's not NYT contacting Alpha Bank that caused the deletion. It's the FBI calling Sinden. Thus, there's no evidence Alpha Bank or Trump Org were even involved. The evidence is quite clear that only Sinden was involved. After the deletion, the email lookups fail back to trump1.contact-client.com, which Jones claims is evidence of the conspiracy because everything he can't explain is evidence of the conspiracy. But, as Graham points out, quote, The name contactclient.com is part of Sendin's infrastructure. For their mail1.customeremail.com domains, there's a matching customer1.contactclient.com domain. This is totally consistent with Sendin's reuse of the infrastructure for a new purpose as it would treat both domain names the same. Rather than evidence suggesting human interaction, it's evidence suggesting the opposite, that there was no human interaction. Jones claims that the Mandiant investigation doesn't refute their findings when their report was inconclusive and therefore can't be evidence of anything, which means the Jones report can't either. And he claims that Trump can't account for what happened, but of course he can't, because neither he nor his organization configured any of it and have no idea what happened. Graham concludes, There is still the question where this DNS anomaly came from, but the allegation that this proves a secret connection between AlphaBank and a Trump server is clearly false. The Jones report is not merely wrong, but deliberately deceptive. They repeatedly reference a Trump Organization server, even though it's quite clear from the text they know that no such server exists. What we have is AlphaBank doing DNS queries, 
What we don't have is any connection to the Trump org. Since Jones couldn't create the conclusion based on evidence that Trump org was involved, he instead made it the premise. This, in turn, makes it easy to disprove the entire Jones report. Since there's not only no evidence of Trump org involvement, and quite a lot of evidence Trump org had no control over the domain or servers, it disproves the entire theory that there were secret connections with AlphaBank. This all just smacks of anomaly hunting. Yeah, he found some stuff that was weird and difficult to account for. But making all of this out to be proof of some kind of secret connection is not only incredibly dishonest, it's bewilderingly silly. Folks, this is what an actual conspiracy theory looks like. So all of that makes Daniel Jones this week's biggest bogani emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's regify this week's... Idiot Extraordinary! And this week it goes to CNN and their chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. It's one thing when they get called out by a rando like me on the internet with a microphone and ideas above his station. It's something else when they're completely called out by an actual judge. In this case, Judge Bruce Schroeder, who is currently presiding over the Kyle Rittenhouse case, who called them out along with the media in general. I'm just going to play the judge's remarks. 32742. I know I've talked about inaccurate things out on the media, and one of the things that I've read over and over and over again is about how I messed up the State Against Jensen case, which is now pending downstairs. He's referring to the case of Mark Jensen, convicted of poisoning his wife in 1998. A new trial has been ordered. Actually, I had it 100% correct in the first place. I ruled that the disputed matter was testimonial evidence that had to be confronted. And your office appealed, this is 20 years ago, and it was fine, it was a big issue, it was a big case. And the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court uh, reversed and said, no, we're going to adopt a new rule that is to be applied in this case about waiver uh, and forfeiture. And so it came back and I said right in the record, this is going to get reversed again because it was an unsound ruling, unanimous. I hate to say that about the Supreme Court, but it's true. The, uh, I tried the case according to the way the Supreme Court told me to try it, and that was 20 years ago. The man is still in prison, and 
the case has again been reversed because of the evidence that the Supreme Court told me to admit. He brought this up with regards to a video the prosecution tried to play showing part of the events in Kenosha. While the video was admissible, this version had audio commentary which, among other issues, referred to Kyle as a militia member, which is completely untrue. Playing that before the jury is hearsay. The only way that could be admitted under the Confrontation Clause is if the commentator were on the stand, subject to cross-examination by the defense. I don't want to mess around with confrontation issues. I can't let you present evidence into this record, which is barred by the confrontation rule, and you're asking me to let this just run while this man is making descriptive materials to prove the state of mind of the accused? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. I'm going to throw another brick bat at Binger here. He's making, well, even, okay, let's not even talk about it as confrontation. Let's talk about it as hearsay. Then it goes to the defendant's state of mind. You stupid banger. That would only be the case if Kyle said it. You can't use someone else's words as evidence of his state of mind. Anyway. You know, I, I'm going to comment about the me again because there was a gentleman on TV night before last who said this is the most divisive case in the country today. So anything that undermines public confidence in what happens here is very important. There are people on the media, on reputable sites, that are saying things that are totally bizarre. And I'm going to cite one only because it is exemplary, and it stems from the, con the conversation we had the other day about the uncommunicated threat rule. The uncommunicated threat rule, which is an ancient rule of our law, which I talked about at the time of the ruling. It says, if the defendant offers evidence of the alleged victim's character, victim, um, it must be in the form of opinion or reputation testimony. Under those circumstances, the evidence of the alleged victim's violent character is admissible independently of Rule 404A2B because it is rele relevant to the accused's apprehension of the imminent danger and the reasonableness of his or her defensive measures. That's what I admitted it on. Now, one of these, uh, this was on CNN, uh, Jeffrey Tubin and uh, another attorney there. The comment was made that the ruling was incomprehensible. And I think they obviously are not familiar with this rule. That's our law. The other attorney, by the way, the one who uttered the word incomprehensible, was CNN legal analyst Ariva Martin. So you're mixing rules up here, and uh, I, I don't understand any theory under which you can bring in what certainly seems to me to be hearsay when you could uh, acquire the attendance of the witness. That's the basis upon which this... Um, ruling was made and it's not incomprehensible and it's accordance with our law and what what is in the mind of the defendant is not governed by that rule this is the character of the decedent i i, I want the case to be fairly tried and i wanted uh, uh, people I to understand that uh, we want to go forward from this case whatever the outcome is and not have all kinds of people making inaccurate statements about what the law is. 
Is it really so much to ask for CNN's legal experts to actually know the law? Or maybe they do, which only makes it worse. So all of that makes CNN and Jeffrey Tubin this week's... Idiot Extraordinary! That wraps up this Have You Killed Someone as a Prank? edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Anton LaVey. Ignorance is one thing, but our society thrives increasingly on stupidity. It depends on people going along with whatever they are told. The media promotes a cultivated stupidity as a posture that is not only acceptable, but laudable. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial and Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.